0: Welcome to Inspire Churches Podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at InspireChurches.com. Good morning. I'm glad that you guys have decided to join us. And, uh, you know, uh, I was just thinking when Pastor Phil was talking about how— It's going to be exciting to celebrate and come together again on a Sunday morning in a facility and we'll be able to hug each other and fist bump and high five. And I began to think, man, that's going to feel almost like heaven when we get there, we get to be around brothers and sisters again and just unite as a family. And so I'm excited about that day. Um, And I'm excited about this morning because we are starting a brand new series. And uh, over the next four Sundays, we're going to kind of unravel this concept. much like pulling a thread on a tapestry. Um, The brand new series is called Behold the Lamb. And uh, today's gonna be the first uh, part of that series. And I know that you guys are going to not only enjoy this, but you're gonna be fed, you're going to be blessed, you're gonna grow. This is gonna be an awesome time. And so I'm just glad that you're here to join us. Um, And as I said, it's almost gonna be like pulling uh, a thread of a tapestry. When you see a tapestry completed, you see this vibrant uh, picture displayed, uh, this large design, and it kind of gives you an idea of of whoever it was that created that tapestry, what they had in mind. And if you pull the right thread, uh, it's possible to really unravel the whole tapestry throughout all of the nuances and complexities uh, because there's a thread that runs throughout the entire thing. Much in the same way, uh, we're going to attempt to show you in this series what many theologians called the scarlet thread of the Bible, uh, which should cause you to behold. To behold what, you ask? Well, to behold the Lamb. To behold the Lamb. And, uh, Really, in the very last document of the Bible, uh, a book that John wrote, he there he goes and he begins to describe a revelation that he had where an angel stands before him and says, don't cry. I want you to come and I want you to see the lion of Judah. I want you to come and see the lion. He's about to have a Narnia moment, right? And he, and he goes and, and he gets ready to see a lion. And then when the scroll is open and the seven seals are broken and he looks up what he sees is a slain lamb a lamb on a throne hence the title behold the lamb he said the angel says listen i want want to show you a lion but what he sees is a lamb and now in order for that to make sense we have to go back to the beginning and a bloody beginning it was So what I want us to do is I want us to turn to Genesis chapter four and we're going to go through uh, several scriptures today. uh, But where we are going to really camp out is Genesis chapter four. So we're going to land there. Uh, And so I want you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles or turn or go ahead and and put on your apps or whatever it is. And and we're going to read here Genesis chapter four. And it reads like this. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. said to Cain why are you angry why is your face downcast if you do what is right will you not be accepted but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you but you must rule over it now Cain said to his brother Abel let's go out into the field and while they were in the field Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries. Listen, your brother's blood. Listen, the blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Wow. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you just illuminate your word through your Holy Spirit. Let it come to life for us as we delve into the truths of the text and give us ears to hear and a mind to comprehend and a heart to receive your anointed word this morning. We honor you, Lord. We give you all of the praise and all of the glory. We thank you in advance for what you are doing in the incredible name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we're in the book of Genesis, and if we only read this book through a historical perspective, a historical lens of the origins of humanity, then we're really reading it from a very limited perspective because the Bible is not inclined to just be a book of history, nor is it inclined to just be a a book of psychology to explain us, but really it's a collection of books meant to reveal God and his plan. Notice what theologian Gordon Fee says. He puts it this way. He says, the Bible is not a disconnected set of stories, each of which has little moral principles in them on how we should live. But primarily, the Bible is a single story telling us what's wrong with the human race and what God's going to do about it. And so even though I had us read Genesis chapter four, because again, that's where we're ultimately going to land. I know that we actually have to go back a little bit more, even closer to the beginning. In fact, to the very beginning, in order for us to understand the weight and the depth of what's being said here, we need to go back to where Moses penned the words in the beginning, God. That way I can, I can begin to lay a foundation of the ancestry of your fault. So, so, so that way we're, that we're not just looking um, at strangers uh, with sort of this abstract curiosity. And nor are we kind of peering through the window of another family's life. But we're actually looking down through our own ancestry and what went wrong and what God do- is doing about it. And so demonstrating that God is not reactively working in the world, but he has a plan. But from and from the beginning, he had a plan. See, you need to understand that God is sovereign in all that he does. He has determined the end from the beginning. And in such times that even we are living now, it really would behoove us to remember this fact. And so Moses doesn't start with us, but he starts with God in The beginning God. God always was. He didn't didn't come into existence. He didn't come from somewhere, but He is self sustaining. He is self existing. This attribute is called the Asaity of God. He always was. He was there before anybody could tell him He was God. He wasn't voted in and He can't be voted out. He always was. God is God all by Himself. He needs nothing else. And out of the fullness of the abundance, of his love, he created. He created Adam and Eve in the communicable attributes of the image of God and placed them in paradise. But then they disobeyed God and sin entered into humanity. And when Adam fell, well, everything else fell with him. In fact, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse six, it says this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now watch this. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then skipping down to verse 21, it says this, that the Lord God then made garments of skin for Adam, that he killed an animal, he made garments for skin of of Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This morning, we're really going to go through three things, uh, and they're this. Number one, the significance of sin. Number two, the, I'm sorry, the seriousness of sin. Number two, the significance of sacrifice. And number three, the sound of blood. Number one, the seriousness of sin. Number two, the significance of sacrifice. And number three, the sound of blood. Number one, the seriousness of sin. Now, what we see here at the beginning is really divine judgment. We see sin coming in and destroying everything. In fact, what we see here is is that Genesis is really teaching us in in a comprehensive way how sin affects and touches absolutely every aspect of reality. And in fact, it shows us four things, and I want to quickly move through them. So that way you can really see the gravity of what sin does. Number one, what they notice what they experienced was first spiritual alienation. They were cut off from God. In verse eight, maybe some of the saddest verses in the Bible, notice it says that they heard God and they hid. They heard God and they hid because they they immediately experienced spiritual alienation. In fact, many of us right now are experiencing some sort of alienation. In fact, we have a term in our vernacular that, that has never been there before, a phrase that we've never used called social distancing. Something that we've never had to say before. And, and even in that social distancing that you and I are experiencing right now, uh, there are people that that have it has affected all of us in some way or fashion where we begin to feel lonelier. We begin to uh, get anxiety. We begin to realize the, the need for community right? And, and, and here it was even obviously much greater than that, this spiritual alienation. And if you say, well, I've never really felt far from God. I've never really felt distant from God. Well, it's probably because you've created a God that is comfy for you. And, and, you, and you've created a God that, have, that has deemed everything that you do to be moral and right and okay, but that's not the God of the Bible. Second thing quickly is not only does it create spiritual alienation, but then that leads to psychological alienation. Because notice the second thing that we see is it says that the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. Now, what's fascinating is that in chapter 2, verse 25, it says that that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So in chapter 2, they were naked and they were fine. In chapter 3, they're naked and they're not. What's the difference? Well, I don't have time to really get into it, except to tell you that the difference between chapter two and chapter three is that they began to feel shame. They now have a psychological alienation. In other words, the minute that we lose God, there is a deep, radical, psychological dislocation. We're no longer uh, at ease with who we are. There's a sense of inadequacy within all of us. And that's because, watch this, write this down, when when you lose who God is, you lose who you are. I'll say it again. When you lose who God is, you lose who you are. Thirdly, and you'll see how this kind of flows because spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, and psychological alienation leads to social alienation, right? social alienation. Look at verse seven. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. And so they began to sew, sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. They, they, they were covering themselves. But why? God wasn't here yet. He doesn't show up until verse nine. So who were they covering? Who were they hiding from? Well, from each other. From each other, And we've been hiding from each other ever since. We, we hide our flaws and our insecurities. We hate being vulnerable to people. We hate showing people that we're broken. We have a hard time trusting others with the most precious and vulnerable part of ourselves. Spiritual alienation, psychological alienation, social alienation, and last of all, sin finally touches physical reality. The physical. Now we have floods and earthquakes and disease and cancers and death. Now, the reason that I went through those is because it's important for you to know what sin does. Because as you're hearing this and as you're feeling it inside of you, as you're like, oh my gosh, yes, this is right. There's something that says, well, how do we fix this? This has to be fixed. What do we do? Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden we realize the significance of sacrifice. Point two, significance of sacrifice. It's interesting because here Adam and Eve sinned. And they immediately began to sow fig leaves together. This sowing this of the fig leaves is, is really nothing more than self-justification. It's, it's really nothing more than, than trying to uh, work for your salvation. It's nothing more than just, you know, dead religion. And, and when God comes and he looks at the vegetation, he looks at the plants, he looks at uh, Adam's fig leaves, and he does not accept it. He says, that's not acceptable, not acceptable. And we see divine judgment come upon Adam and Eve, but we don't just see divine judgment. Then we also see divine mercy. We see that God initiates redemption and restoration, and he goes and he finds an innocent animal. And for the first time in scripture, we see the first death and the first death in scripture is a sacrifice. Hmm. There was a shedding of blood. God said, listen, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Well, why did Adam not die? Because something died in its place. Something died in his place. Divine mercy. And so after, after God, you know, uh, went and killed uh, this uh, innocent animal and took its skin and and made coverings, God then kicked them out of the garden, which is actually also an act of mercy, but he kicked them out of the garden. And, and this is, this is a sign of being separated from the very presence of God. In fact, when it talks about God walking in the cool of the day, that's a Hebrew idiom. It it doesn't mean that, that you could go in, 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 in the soils of the garden of Eden, you can see the footprints of God, but it's a Hebrew idiom to talk about this, this, this uh, sort of intense uh, relationship they had, this intimate relationship they had with God. And now they no longer do. They are kicked out of the garden and, and a flashing sword, a flaming flashing sword now is put in front to, so that way nobody else in the humanity cannot enter in except for under the knife. Do you see that? I mean, it's almost like you could see it when, when, when they go to walk up, all of a sudden the sword just flashes down and swoops in. And, and, and so Adam and Eve quickly discovered that, wait a minute, how do I get back in the presence of God? I can't. If I, if I walk forward, this, this sword's gonna come. It'll take my life. The only way to get back into the presence of God is for somebody to go under the knife. And, and really this should be bringing sort of memories of Abraham memories of Abraham and, and, and his son that he tied to the altar and he was getting ready to sacrifice because he was being obedient to God. And he had the knife in his hand. And as the knife was about to come down, the angel of the Lord stopped him and showed him the ram in the thicket showed him that, wait a minute, it has already been provided. It's already been provided The solution has been provided. The sacrifice has been prepared. And Abraham was able to take his son off and instead substitute him for the sheep, for the ram that was in the bush. And he tied the ram down and was sacrificed. And was sacrificed. And you might be thinking, man, this is, a lot of blood. This really is a bloody beginning. It is. I remember when uh, growing up, we would wash, uh, we would, uh, sorry, sing that song, Are You Washed by the Blood of the Lamb? Remember that song? You know, have you come to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed by the blood of the Lamb? Only in my great-grandmother's church, you couldn't say washed, you had to say washed. And so you'd have to say, you know, are you have you come to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Right? Are you trusting in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And I remember our friend would, uh, we brought a uh, friend one time and we were singing this song and, and that church, they did something called foot washing and, and they did it like once a month. And so they started bringing out these bins of liquid and my friend started getting nervous because he was like, are we really going to get washed in blood? You know what's going on? Right. And you might be thinking, well, why, why blood? Why does it have to be a bloody beginning? what's fascinating is uh, God instructed his people to build a tabernacle, which again is is just a beautiful design that points to Christ. Every part of the tabernacle, this was a a tent, a meeting place where they would worship God and they would come into God's presence and every part of it. In fact, even things like there was only one door to get in. There was one gate to get into the tabernacle. There wasn't several gates. You can only get in one way. And so the gate itself represents Jesus Christ, the one way he is the, the life and he's the, truth and he is the way. Every part of the tabernacle from the colors to the tapestries, uh, all, every part of it f- from the brazen altar, all of it from the lavern to the showbread to the candlesticks, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating is this, is that the very first thing you encountered when you walked through the door, when you walked through the gate was an altar where a blood sacrifice was required in order to go forward. And in Leviticus chapter 17, as they are giving instructions on what to do, because it would start with blood and it would end with blood, because at the, as you progress through the tabernacle, you got to the Holy Holies where the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. So it would start with blood and end with blood. And Leviticus 17 says something interesting it says it's because there's life in the blood, there's life in the blood. Why blood? Because there's life in the blood. Well, why life? Why, 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 does, why, why is it that in order to get rid of sin, the, that, that God d- demanded, that the law demanded a life? Well, that's, when people ask that question, it's usually because of one of three things. One, they either don't understand the depravity of sin, or two, they don't understand the love and holiness of God, or three, they don't understand both. See? See, and when you look at animal sacrifices and you think, man, that's so violent and that that's so ugly. Yeah, it is. You think it's so destructive, it is. And that's because sin is violent and ugly and destructive. And so from the garden of Eden on, the blood of bulls and sheeps have been poured out. Lambs have been sacrificed. Why? What's the significance? Why well, don't you see? Are, are you following the thread? It, it's pointing to something. And here's why you can write this down because for every slaughtered sheep is a shadow of a greater reality. For every slaughtered sheep is a shadow of a greater reality. And when we read the story of Cain and Abel, we really see this reality right before our eyes. The seriousness of sin, the significance of sacrifice, and the sound of blood. The sound of blood. Now now that you've kind of grasped chapters one and two and three of Genesis, now chapter four is more robust. It, It has greater implications because it lets us know that Cain worked the soil and that Adam was working with the flocks, that their occupation is a hint of the outcome of the story. See, Cain's offering points to humanity's attempt to save themselves. When when Cain, if you remember what we read, how Cain went and brought God this offering from the fruit of the soil, that, that it was just pointing back to Adam's attempt to save themselves. And while Abel was working with the flocks and, and what he is working and when he brings his offering, his offering points to God's solution. See, Cain's offering points to humanity's attempt while Abel's offering points to God's solution. God's solution. Okay. And so when, when they both bring it up, you know, God is looking there and he he looks at the vegetation. He says, no, give me the meat. Now that's my kind of God. I don't know about you guys. That's, I mean, you know, praise the Lord. Right. When I go to a restaurant, we go to sit down and they said, do you want salad? No, sir. I did not come for the salad. (laughs) When we go to the buffet, I can tell you right now, I skip the whole salad section. I see people come with plates built on salad. I skip it all. I go right. I said, let me have some of the, you know, pot roast and uh, give me some of the sirloin and give me some of the ribs, right? <laughs> give me the meat, right? Arby's Arby's commercial. We have the meat. Anyway, whatever. And so and so we see what we see is we see God and he and he has rejected Cain's offering and he's accepted Abel's. And actually, if you've been playing, paying close attention, you'll see a pattern unfold. In fact, when you read the story of Cain and Abel, it's almost like you're reading the story of Adam and Eve. There's so much parallel that it's almost like the garden scene of Eden is being played out again. Watch for the parallels. Watch, 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 watch. He's setting up a pattern and and he's setting up a pattern that is necessary and it actually unfolds in every generation. In every generation, and it repeats here in chapter four, because you have Cain bringing an offering, something from the ground that is rejected, just like Adam's fig leaves. Then you have Abel's sacrificial lamb, the slain sheep that was counted appropriate and approved, like the blood-stained animal skins that covered the nakedness of humanity. And because of that, Abel's offered a better sacrifice, Check this out. look what Hebrews 11:4 says. It says, "By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith he was commanded, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice, a better offering. Well, why? What happened? Well, see, Abel offered his offering in faith. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, faith always means a response to God's grace. And and Cain did not respond to that grace. He, here's what we have. Abel knew the promises that were given to Adam and Eve, his parents, and that we see in Genesis 3.15. Abel knew that he had to have, certainly he knew it. And, and Adam and Eve would have obviously told him, and that promise was that someday, some descendant of Eve would show up and not just hate sin, um, not just hate death, but would actually come in and take on sin and take on death and and be wounded, but then would triumph and would kill sin and death. Abel and Cain both knew those things. And so therefore Abel came and he makes a sacrifice as a response to that salvation, a, a, a sacrifice, and offering that is in alignment with God's plan. And he says, because you're going to save me be, because of this great grace, I give a response. But Cain comes and watch this he makes his offering not as a response to salvation, but as a means to salvation. Not as a response to salvation, but as a means to salvation. Cain brings all the things that he's done. He brings bloodless things before God. It's just, it's just the sowing of fig leaves happening all over again. Right? He, he, he's showing you, he's saying, God, here's my work. Here's what I'm doing, right? Look what I've done. You, you know whether you are more like Abel or Cain when you respond to God's grace? Do you want to know how you know that? Do you want to know how if you, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm more like Abel or, or maybe I'm more like Cain. I think I'm like Abel, but what if I'm more like Cain? Here's how you know, here's how you can tell. Here, here's how you can tell. When you say with your lips, I believe I'm saved by grace, when you say that, but when things in your life go poorly, you get angry at God. That's how you know, right? That's how you know. When, 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 the, when your life, it doesn't pan out the way you have it in your mind, then all of a sudden you get angry or you lose faith or you say, well, that's it. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. And this is why, because what it shows is you believe that God owes you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, God, I've paid you. I've paid you in prayers. I've paid you in showing up to church. I've paid you in offering. I've paid you in serving. I've paid you in faith. And now you owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me a protected life. You owe me a life without pain and suffering and sickness and these. You owe me heaven. You owe me salvation because I've worked for it. Because I've worked for it. And so the Bible says that Cain gets upset and actually the word there is that he gets depressed. When it talks about his head being down low and, and his face being towards it, it's, a, it's he gets depressed. And what's fascinating is, again, we see the garden pattern come forward because the Lord does not wait for Cain to actually do the bad deed before coming to him. But he comes to Cain, right? And he says this, he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Basically, he comes and he tries to intervene early, just like a good counselor would. He's not up there tapping his foot, folding his arms, saying, well, let's just see what Cain does. Let's see if he's going to mess up. No, no. He intervenes early and he intervenes tenderly. And he doesn't show up and he doesn't say, how dare you question you know, the way I handle offerings or do you know who I am, grovel at my glory? He doesn't say that, right? But he doesn't come in with commands and demands, but he comes in with questions. And he says, why are you angry? Why, are you, why is your face casted down? He comes in tenderly. You know what he's doing here? What's so interesting is this, is that God doesn't jump up and say, do right, before he gets to that, which he does tell him to do right, but, but before he gets that, he's trying, to, he's trying to get Cain to see what's underneath the motives of his heart. He says, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? He, he, says, that, he says that he's trying to get him to see what's behind it, what's underneath it, what, what's making his heart tick. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just cover this, get to the surface. It gets down to our motives and, 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 and it begins to reveal what, what is it that makes us tick? And I love how God says this. He, say, he looks at verse seven. Look what he says in verse seven. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In other words, Cain, you have a choice. You have a choice. Just like Adam have a choice. Just like we have a choice. You had a choice. But ignoring God, He asks his brother to come to a field. And the very man who refused to kill a lamb is now ready to kill a man. The very person that refuses to kill a lamb is now ready to kill a man. So he goes to Abel and he says, come, he says, come into my field. This simple phrase, come into the field, let's go into the field, is, is a prophetic foreshadow of where the blood will be spilt. That, that Abel has to go into another territory is a shadow of Christ coming into earth. And so here comes, here comes Abel coming into Cain's territory. And, and Cain, his brother, attacks him and kills him. And it's no coincidence. In fact, it, it's like it had to be his brother. It had to be his brother that killed him because because Abel in so many ways is a representative. He's a type of Christ. And the fact that Abel was killed by his brother is prophetic to the fact that Jesus would be killed by his Jewish brothers. Remember, it wasn't the Romans that wanted to kill Christ. In fact, the Romans says, we don't want to kill him. You know, they washed their hands. and We don't want to do this. It's up to you. It was his Jewish brothers that said, crucify him, crucify him. And so Cain kills his brother and God doesn't stop it. Hmm. God doesn't stop it. Cain killed Abel, Abel who had the favor of the Lord on him and God allows him to die. And we continue to see the garden pattern. Notice that after Adam fell, God came and began to ask questions of awareness. Adam, where are you? Something's changed. Where are you? And now after Cain sinned, after he murdered his brother, God came down and asked another question of awareness. He said, where is your brother? Where's your brother? Now, this is how you know that you actually see God being patient with Cain. Because Cain has the audacity to respond back to God with attitude. Do you notice that? He says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? I'll tell you right now tell you right now, this is why I'm not God. And this is why this is showing God's patience. Because if I would have went to one of my daughters, and if I would have said, hey, where's your sister? And if she would have turned around and says, I don't know, I'm not my sister's keeper. You're the dad, shouldn't you know where he where she is? Right now, I tell you right now, she couldn't run far <laughs> enough where my belt would not reach her, right? <laughs> but, but, but God has patience, has patience. And notice what Cain did there. Again, the garden pattern. No, you know, uh, God comes in and God says, you know, where's your brother? And he turns it back. Do you, do you notice that? He shifts the blame. He shifts the blame. And God tells him, look at this in verse 11, now you are under a curse. Watch the pattern. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its cost for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Don't you see the pattern? Adam sinned and was cursed. Adam sinned and was driven from the ground. Adam sinned and and he was kicked out of the garden. He was wandering because he was kicked out out of the very presence of God. And we see the same thing happening with Cain. Same thing. It's because sin always does the same thing. It alienates and it decays. Here with Cain, we see divine judgment, just like in the garden. But just like in the garden, we see divine mercy. Because even though Cain, watch this, never represents, God combines justice and mercy, and he puts a mark on him. In Cain's ridiculous, unrepentant, self-defensive plea, there's a cry that he gives to God. He basically says, pity me. And God responds. This is amazing. Because God cares even for the unrepentant sinner. God cares for people who will not listen to him, who who will not love him, who want nothing to do with him. Now, God cannot bring him into his presence. Do you see that? But he sustains him when he sends him out. And the whole time, Cain had to hear the sound of blood. Had to hear the sound of blood. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Listen, your brother's blood cries out, listen, blood cry, listen to the blood? Are you hearing the sound of the blood? The blood is crying out. God hears the cry of injustice and Abel's blood would cry from generation to generation. It would cry for judgment. It would cry for judgment for every bleeding and bloody lamb, judgment. It reminds me of that part in Macbeth when he writes, each new morn, new widows uh, howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. God said, I hear the sound of blood. The sound of Abel's blood cries out and it continues to cry out until the real Abel came along. The real Abel? (laughs) Who's the real Abel? Are you following the thread? Are you following the thread? It's the one that, that this Abel points to you see, because it is here that God reveals that the lamb is just a symbol for the man and that the lamb is a man and the man is a lamb. I'm going to say that again, that the lamb is a man and the man is a lamb. Are you following the thread? Because Abel is just a shadow of Jesus. See, my shadow just points to me. I am the better reality. My shadow, even though it's real, I am the better manifestation of what the shadow points to and and Abel is just a shadow of Jesus whose spilt blood also cries but it speaks of something greater as we go to wrap up look at this Hebrews chapter 12 starting in verse 24 it says this to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that? That Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled of blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Why is it better? Here's why. Because Abel's blood cried for judgment while Christ's blood cries for justice. Abel's blood cries for judgment while Christ's blood cries for justice. See, see, when you sin, if you're a Christian, then Jesus is standing before the Father and he says, my blood is crying out for justice, not against you, but for you. See, when, when, when Jesus is standing before the Father and he's talking to all of us who are Christians, he, he is saying that I'm, I, I am crying out for justice, not against them, but for them. Don't you see? Jesus is the greater Abel. Amen. But there's a difference because unlike Abel, unlike the sheep before him who had no say in their death, Jesus laid down his life voluntarily. He volunteered the shedding of his blood. And oh, does his blood speak. Oh, does his blood speak. Do do you hear it? Do you hear the blood? Listen to the sound of the blood. Because if you listen to the sound of the blood of Jesus, then even in the midst of the circumstances that you may be in, even right now, you can say, God, I worship you anyways. I'm bringing to you the sacrifice of who I am anyways. I'm responding to your grace anyways. If you listen to the blood, that that even when a voice might come in and say, well, if you only knew what I did, that you would know God would never forgive me. No, no, no. The blood speaks a better word than that. See, when situations don't turn out the way that you envision, you don't get angry at God. You don't get bitter or depressed, but you will stay at peace. When you take a hit, you're still grateful. You're not complaining. You're grateful because you're listening to the blood. Listen, listen. Do you hear the sound? The sound of the blood. The blood says God is still in control. That God has victory. That there is hope for you. That there is justice for you in the blood. There is mercy for you in the blood. There is grace for you in the blood. There is restoration and peace and forgiveness in the life-giving blood of of Jesus Christ do, do you hear it and it's only by the blood it's not by anything else no matter what you try to go to no matter where you try to look no matter what else you try to take in this place it won't happen it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ oh how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain I know nothing but the blood of Jesus Lord, help us not come to you with empty religion or self-righteous works, but to see the seriousness of sin, to comprehend the significance of the sacrifice, and to hear the sound of the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Let's respond, church. Uh, Earlier, Pastor Phil talked about how we are still having our connect groups going on and that we're not meeting in rows and we're not even meeting in circles, but we're meeting in squares because we're having our connects through Zoom. And so every week we like to give the questions that we are going to be discussing during our connects. And so that's what I wanna do right now. And so question number one is this, how has the knowledge of the significance of the sacrifice impacted your understanding of God? Number two, how does uh, identifying the scarlet thread shape your view of scripture? And number three, in what ways do you see the garden pattern played out in your own life? I'm excited for us to meet together, to continue to uh, have community through Zoom, and I pray that uh, you will continue to join us for the rest of this series. Uh, I'm excited uh, because Pastor Phil is going to be uh, bringing the message next Sunday, and you don't want to miss it. It's going to be amazing. Um, And so please gather everybody that you can, all your friends and family members, and tell them, hey, you got to check out Inspire, and uh, hear this new series on the blood of the lamb and uh, i just want you to know that we love you very much we miss you guys we're thinking about all of you and and uh you know the lord jesus christ is so good and sometimes it's in situations and circumstances like this that we can really see the love of god shine through love you guys i hope you guys have an awesome week bye thank you for joining us for this week's inspired churches podcast don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every sunday You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram at Inspired Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspiredchurches.com for more information.